Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. Uh, So before uh, I hand it over to Jonathan, um, you're welcome to start getting ready. So you're all set up. Uh, Jonathan has done a lot of really cool things. Uh, This is just a short introduction into some of them, but he studied under uh, Thomas Ord. um, So who I would say, uh, maybe this is there's a different way to give him this title, but he's one of the preeminent scholars in open and relational theology. I think if you go to his website, he's the one who coined the term. Is that correct? Uh, so Tom Ward coined the term open and relational theology. If you don't know what that is, um, it's awesome, an awesome way to think about God. But uh, he has a thought-provoking and a rich Substack email list that drops weekly nuggets of goodness. That was my favorite way to describe that. <laughs> he's written a few books, and he has some of them here, so if you want to buy one, he's got Theology of Consent, The Hope and Melvin of Humanity, and other surprising short stories, Questions About Sexuality That Got Me Uninvited from My Denomination. That one has an interesting story, so <laughs> um, I don't know if you'll bring that up, but uh, maybe you can ask him afterwards if he doesn't. Uh, and The Reconstructionists. And you also have written in a book that came out recently about sexuality in the Nazarene church. So he's got um, an essay or more than one maybe in there. Um, So all that stuff you can find at his website, uh, jonathanfosteronline.com. He's awesome. Grateful to have you here. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Jonathan Foster. I I mean, I, I can stay down on the floor, but that's fine, too. I like to speak down to people <laughs> and use their microphone. Thank you so much, Fabian, for that great introduction. And uh, I really enjoyed being here last time because you had donuts. But this time you have Cheez-Its. So you have upped the ante, uh, so to speak. And who knows what it'll be like next time I come. could be out of control. Uh, speaking of the books, just a couple quick things before we get started. So don't start the clock yet. I did bring, yes, um, Theology of Consent which is basically three years of my life trying to encapsulate like to the best that I possibly can currently where I'm landing with my theology. Unfortunately, it'll probably change in about 10 years or maybe maybe fortunately because then it'll require me to do something else uh, along those lines. But if you like to read, that's a good one. If you like to read but just a little bit less, maybe go for the Reconstructionist. It's much uh, thinner and uh, smaller. And uh, Reconstructionist is interesting about three or four years ago, I came to the realization that in my deconstruction, like reconstruction journey, whatever we call this, that um, that I was kind of coming, I was landing like the reconstruction part. There was a reason I was reconstructing. It was because I was filtering all the questions that I had, I realized, really through three concepts. And those concepts I finally decided were, um, and you're, I know this church is, you're going to like this, uh, mercy is greater than sacrifice. People are greater than the text, and love is greater than fear. And I realized one day, or really over the course of probably a few weeks or months, that no matter what question I had, sexuality, 
church, Bible, Jesus, sovereignty, end times, book of Revelation, whatever. Like um, the theology that I was really interested in were the kind, was the kind that was landing on love, mercy, and people, and not the kind that was landing on fear, Bible, like worship the words of the Bible and sacrifice. So anyhow, the Reconstructionist is about that uh, journey just a little bit and why that kind of got started. And so thank you for letting me plug those. It's my least favorite thing to do when I'm with a group of people, but publishers like it, and so um, so there you go. Oh, I guess I should mention, um, thanks for plugging the Substack and the drops of nuggets. What'd you say? That was nice, whatever you said. <laughs> nuggets of goodness? Yeah, something like that. Um, so if you sign up to the Substack, it's only like five bucks a month or something, you get a book free. And if you don't want to do that and you just like want the free Substack, so which just means you get a few less emails from me, you can buy the book. And my partner and I, one of us will be out there. And this is Jana, uh, so glad to have her here with us tonight. All right, enough of that stuff. Let's get on uh, with nuggets of goodness. Um, content I have tonight strong. I don't know about my delivery, but I know the content's strong. So if you'll just give me some patience, that'll be good. I'll speak for about 20-ish minutes, and then maybe we'll do some question and response for about 20-ish minutes. And because if, well, I won't have done a good job if you don't have any questions. I'll just put it that way. So I, I know there's got to be a few questions and comments. Um, tonight, I think the title is not, do we have a title slide before that? That's fine if it works. For, well, that's fine. We can go straight to that. That's cool. Let's just call it Brew Church Talk then. Yeah. And I'm glad that I'm responsible for bringing out uh, the screen tonight. Uh, yeah, I had several different titles, but really for me over the last few weeks, as I've been thinking about hanging out with you guys, it's just been Brew Church Talk. And I've kind of known the gist of what I was going to say for a few weeks, which is pretty good for me, by the way, because it's usually like last couple of days before I speak somewhere. So, um, but what I haven't known is exactly why. I should say these things like, what's the motivation? So I had a conversation with Brew Church Talk, and this is my picture of the conversation. Um, and I asked Brew Church Talk, I don't know if any of you creatives talk to the things that you create, but sometimes I do. And I'm like, Brew Church Talk, why do you want to be? Like, what's going on? What's the motivation? Why do you want to emerge in this collective space in the way that it seems like you want to emerge? I don't know why Brew Church Talk looks like an alien, other than <laughs> the constraints of my drawing abilities. Um, but that's appropriate, because sometimes these creative things are a little bit foreign, are a little bit alien. Anyhow, I had to lean in really close. So I drew a picture of me leaning in really close, I think. Maybe we have it. I don't know if we do or not. Do we have another? Yep. It's me really close, and Brew Church Talk was whispering something about reality, that I should share this tonight with us, that it wanted to emerge in this space with us together because of reality, which um, was a little bit confusing at first. But as these, because as these things go, um, when I have these conversations with these creative things, they're not always really definitive or like super articulate. So I kind of have to like, but this was all I got. You can tell I'm really focusing in that picture, trying to listen. But he or she or it said reality. And so to frame what I want to say, uh, let me just talk a bit about reality which is, um, I feel like arrogant saying I'm going to talk about reality, as if I can define reality for you. Um, you all probably know the problem with that. First of all, I may be not very smart, so that's a problem. 
Secondly, a problem when anyone wants to define reality, it, the problem is I am a part of the reality that I'm trying to define. So I'm um, very much, um, I'm not an exception guy, I'm an exemplification guy, which means that none of us are an exception to the reality that's going on around us. We're all really, we're all exemplifications of the things that are going on around us. So in, in one sense, it's probably impossible for any of us to define reality because I'm bringing in my own biases and my own motivations and my own desires. And frankly, I don't know what the heck I even think half the time. I probably shouldn't admit that right up front. Um, I should wait till the end to admit that. Um, but I think that's true. So it's, um, it's kind of a daunting task. However, I also have spent, I've logged quite a few hours thinking about these things, and uh, I've been through quite a few things in my life, and so, so maybe, um, maybe I have something to offer tonight. And obviously, when anyone talks about anything, you always have to you know, hear it with a grain of salt, unless it's Fabian, because his stuff is solid gold all the time, <laughs> or platinum, as it were. Um, so, yeah, I'm framing the talk around reality uh, because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And I think what I want to say about reality is, like, reality is this thing that's going on all around us and within us, inside of us, internal, external, all the time. Whether we kind of know it or not, it's the stuff that is, um, that is true and um, I think the goal of being a healthy human being I think a, a way of saying this is like a goal of being a healthy human being is to try to, to, to line our lives up with the reality that's already going on. Um, so maybe I'll think in terms of like, like the reality of the universe. Um, universe is actually a really good word um, because universe means one song. Literally, that's what it means. So, so uh, what I think that I think is is that the reality that's going on around is this one song that's constantly playing. And it's giving off all these different vibrations and sounds and all these things, and we're trying to listen to it. It doesn't, doesn't mean that it's always a really simple song, because if you know anything about music, there's keys and modes and scales and minors and majors and different instruments and voices. There's, it can get really, really complicated. Um, but that is a way to begin to think about reality. It's like the one song that's playing all the time, and then our goal or our invitation is to try to tune ourselves up to that reality, uh, to think about it in that way. So for example, earlier, uh, the band, you guys did great. Thank you for leading us in that stuff. Um, I don't know, what, what key was one of your songs in? Anyone know? Key of life. Key of life. <laughs> yes. Bro, you're stealing my thunder. I'm going to get there in a second, but <laughs> let's just say you're playing in the key of G. Uh, so to be clear, uh, what the band did a little bit ago was they did not invent the key of G. They decided beforehand to tune their instruments and their voices up to the key of G and kind of align with the reality of the key of G that was already happening. And they led us in the key of the reality of G. Um, Reality is this one song that's playing, and the invitation, I think, is for all of us to align with that particular thing. So we're all kind of like instruments tonight, I think. Uh, maybe we're like a guitar, and that's like you, and the goal is to maybe 
um, to tune that up to the reality of whatever key is going on. Are you with me so far? So all good talks have to have a, well, they don't have to, but they probably should have a problem that the speaker's trying to solve. So now that I've given you that outstanding backstory about reality and my conversation with the Brew Church talk and what I think the heck I'm supposed to be doing tonight, um, it leads me to state the problem. And so the problem is um, that much Americanized Christianity has done its very best to locate itself and all of us in spaces that are not resonant with reality. Yep, that's what I said. Much Americanized religion locates itself and all of us in spaces that are not resonant with reality. A amen to that. So what's the solution? Well, the solution then is to uh, help our religion be located in spaces that are resonant with reality. And so tonight, uh, I'm going to give you three ways that we can begin to tune ourselves up to the key of reality that's playing. And we're just trying to access this thing that's already going on. We're not inventing it. Uh, we're not creating it. Um, we're just trying to live in harmony with it. Like the easy way to say this is, how do, how do we tune ourselves up? Like much Americanized religion is out of tune. So how do we get in tune? I hesitated for a second when I said much because it's really easy for me to uh, scapegoat and to blame, uh, which is part of the reason probably why I was invited to do a dissertation about scapegoating uh, because, you know, something somewhere in the cosmos was like, you should probably wrestle with that a little bit. So anyhow, that's for a whole nother thing. Um, so tonight we're trying to, yeah, we're trying to uh, tune ourselves up into the key of reality, and I'm going to give you three three ways to do it. I have about, gosh, probably about a dozen of these things, but, you know, for sake of time, because uh, there's only like three bags of Cheez-Its, we should just stick to, <laughs> stick to three. Um, so here's the first. First way we can begin to tune ourselves up to the key of reality is, don't put it up yet. Oh, you already did. I was going to see if I can remember, uh, but that's cool. It's to make the shift from blueprint to story. By the way, that's my little religion tuner I brought with me tonight. It's a little uh, app you can buy. Just go to JonathanFosterOnline.com, and that's my religion tuner. Uh, so here's the first way we begin to tune up to reality is we, we try to make the shift from blueprint to story. This is super fascinating. One, one way, one reason I feel semi-confident about talking about reality with you is because, um, well, first of all, I'm 55, so I've been through, I've, I've been down a, a few years now, and I've been through a lot of really intense stuff, and I've worked with a lot of people like you, and I've been listening to the voices inside of my own head, which is a whole nother issue, um, and I've noticed something over the years that, and what I've noticed is that no matter whether I'm talking or thinking or reading about science or theology or the Bible or any number of things, there are these certain things that seem to emerge. And so I, th I think that's why I think that these things are representative of reality. This is one of the things that keeps emerging, no, no matter kind of like what genre or area I'm in or thinking about. It's this movement from blueprint to story, which is to say, not everything is predetermined, planned exactly as it's supposed to go, like here's the blueprint, 
and everything's supposed to line out that. And I think you said as much earlier um, in one of your introductions to the songs. It's not a blueprint universe. The fascinating thing is, um, if you listen to the super religious theist, they're, they're saying um, something quite different. They're saying that, you know, God preordained all these things and all your steps have been ordered and every single thought you've ever had and everything's cascading down. So they're saying that. And it's really interesting is some of the what we call the new atheist movement, which would be like the super, well, I started to say irreligious, but they're kind of religious in their own way. So like the super religious atheist movement is also saying the same thing. That's not to say that all atheists think this. So if you're an atheist here tonight, first of all, it's really cool to have you. Secondly, uh, um, I guess there is no secondly. First of all, yeah, it's cool to have you. Um, but what's interesting to me is the new atheist movement, by and large, kind of pushes this agenda that, yeah, everything's been predetermined. It's, uh, it's mind, like, I don't, mind-numbing, what's the word? Like, it drives me crazy, basically, sometimes, because when you start to peel that back, when you start to ask questions, well, what does that mean? Everything's been predetermined. It uh, almost always, if not always, winds up going back to like some external thing started this but they of course are never going to say god so it winds up being physics or math or something akin to magic or it just is and to me it's funny because well then why can't we just insert god into that thing but even then i don't want to do that because i don't want to say that god has predetermined every single thing because personally i have a problem with a deity that has predetermined all the crap that all of us have gone through or that we see our brothers and sisters in this world going through. So I'm not a big blueprint guy. I'm a story guy. And I'm thinking that the problems that you are having in your life, how many of you are having any problems in your life by a show of hands? Let me see. We have a couple liars and everyone else is <laughs> very honest. I'm thinking that the problems in your life are not evidence of um, of a universe that has gone askew from the way it's supposed to go. Because think about it, if everything's blueprint, all it takes is one like maverick molecule, which is why some of the theists, they'll even talk about maverick molecules, like there's no such thing. All it takes is one accidental thing to go wrong and everything else, domino, gets messed up. Um, I don't think the problems in your life are evidence of that. I actually think the problems exist in your life for a multiplicity of reasons, some of which are because you're probably not very smart and you did some dumb things, some of which are things that you have no control over, some of which um, we could probably unpack if we wanted to take the time to talk about all the different systems that we all exist in. There's a hundred or maybe a thousand different reasons why the stuff is going on the way that it's going on. But the way I like to look at it is story in the sense that none of us, like there are no good stories that don't have tension in them. None of us read a book or would go to a movie or listen to a music if there wasn't some tension in it. That's the piece that seems to help us catch traction in life. It's the, seem the piece that seems to help us enjoy like art. And what I found for me is is when I begin to look at it that way, it's the piece that helps me enjoy my life even more because I kind of think we are all God's art. Oh, wait, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are all God's, uh, the original Greek is poema, which we get the English word poem. And I think God is an artist that has written some stuff 
and some characters like you and me that have now taken on a life of their own like a really good uh, artist or an author does and um, are now kind of co-partnering with the, with the author to figure out how some stuff goes, but not everything's been predetermined. It's a discovery and an adventure. So, so I guess what I was like, I'm trying to mentally sift through a bunch of this because I, I could talk forever about each one of these points, but like if we were talking science, if we were to start talking about predetermined stuff, for me, all we have to do is start talking quantum mechanics. At the, at the very least, you could say at a subatomic particle level, we have no idea what's going on. At the very least, and I think we can say more than that, but I, but I can say at the very least, subatomically, like randomness and chance and aleatory thinking are highly esteemed. And there is no place in the cosmos that doesn't have subatomic particles. So I mean, scientifically, it's true. I think theologically, it's true. Sometimes I'll say it this way. I use this line a lot. You can use it, by the way, if you want. You don't even have to credit me. It's totally fine. Uh, what does the old preacher say? He said something like, <coughs> yeah, the first time you quote me, you can say so-and-so says. The next time you quote me, you can say, uh, I've heard someone say. And then the third time you quote me, you can say, you know, I've been thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do this with this line. I uh, use it all the time, and that is, there is a way to read the Bible that would lead you to think that it's, we're talking about a blueprint God. I just don't think it's the healthy way to read the Bible. There's a way, and that's why lots, that's why the majority of Western Christianity probably has done it, um, but it's not the healthy way. In my opinion, it's not the healthiest in terms of my definition of health. All right, which might be a good question later on if anyone wants to ask about health. Let's move to number two. Here's a second way to tune up to reality. I think we're moving along at a good pace. It's to make the shift from mechanistic thinking uh, to, to organism thinking. <laughs> and I hesitated because uh, a buddy of mine was talking about this very, very thing. Um, and we were leading this little deal, and it was a group of about 50 of us. And he said something along the lines of um, moving to organism or, or Orgasm thinking. <laughs> so, which, I mean, he really, really likes this theology. So, I mean, <laughs> super excited about this point. So, I will never, I, now I just see that word and that's all that happens. So, um, <laughs> but I think it works too, though, trust me, I'm not going to unpack it. We're not going to double click on that and worry about that. But, <laughs> um, but this is the movement from uh, mechanistic thinking to organism thinking. Like, uh, I'll just give you a kind of a list of things, and you'll recognize these right away as, as mechanistic. This idea that we live in a machine-like world, like it's substance-based. Like you can black and white demarcate between every single thing. Um, it's, a, it's a world that mechanistic thinking leads you to think that it's been designed by some external Something external, again, physics, science, God, magic, we don't know. But some kind of intelligent design has, you know, made it happen. Um, what else? Clock-like. Um, that's a good one. What we're trying to get to is make the shift to the opposite of all those things, which would be not clock-like, but fluid-like. Not black and white, like I know exactly what this thing is. 
as compared to this thing, but um, things are permeable. They flow together. Like even cellularly, the, the power is not in the proton, the electron, or the neutron. The power actually is in the relationship between the three. And that's such a powerful example because we know what happens when we try to split the atom. In a, in a sense, it's like going against the nature of reality. Um, and I think that that thinking can be applied to our lives. And when we try to extract relationship from our lives, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem. So we're trying to make the shift from everything and everyone being these isolated creatures to realizing what reality is telling us is there, there is no isolated creature. We're all interconnected. Psychologically, it's the move from individual to interdividual. It's the permeability. It's the recognition that um, when we're talking about you, we're kind of talking about me. And when we're talking about me, we're kind of talking about you. We're all a part of this story together, um, and we're flowing in and out of each other's lives, which is really challenging. Like, honestly, there are some days when I think it would just be easier if I could um, just label this particular thing 100% this way, either bad or good, or for that matter, label myself 100% bad or good or whatever. But re what reality is telling us is that that's not entirely correct Though the one caveat is, um, I shouldn't say one caveat, a, a caveat is, like, I do want to reserve room to talk about evil, and so I'm not suggesting that we can't label things as such, but that as we do, just to be aware of our own implicit involvement in, uh, in the system of evil of, oh, and just to define evil, and <laughs> that's, that could be a whole uh, couple of nights in and of themselves. So yeah, it's the shift from mechanistic thinking to organism. It's the shift from all these separate little parts that are you can kind of pull in and out and insert back in like a machine to the reality that, uh, no, the power is in the way they all interact together. And you can't exactly extract that. I can tell you're pretty excited about that one. That's good. <laughs> all right, here's the third one. Uh, it's the shift from control to consent. And you'll notice something about all three of these. Um, all of them, I think, back to our kind of music universe one song uh, example, they're all giving off vibrations that kind of harmonize with each other. They're all kind of the, they're saying the same thing but approaching it from different, from different angles. Which for me helps me know that I'm, in the right key, like we're, we're going to the right key because there's harmonization here. Okay, this is the move from control to consent. Um, what do I want to say about this? Actually, I should ask myself, what do I not want to say about this? Because there's so much stuff to say about it. You know, we, yeah, we basically in the West have been conditioned to think that um, what the Bible is telling us is that God is in control, capital C, control. And I think it's highly problematic. Because I think, like, first of all, I don't know anything for sure. You've probably figured that out by now. So I don't know anything for sure, but by faith, I think the best thing that I can say about God, or maybe I'll say the most interesting thing I could say about God is that God is love. 
I think that's the best, most interesting thing. I think the pinnacle of all scripture is 1 John 4, 18, God is love. And I think that when all of us, whatever sacred text we're reading, whatever we're doing in life, we always look at it through a particular lens. And so what I just intentionally chose to do, I mean, I was doing it when I was younger, but I really just had to go through some stuff and gain some newer language to really do it. Um, I don't know if I do it well, but to do it better than I used to. What I had to do was I had to intentionally choose, oh, no, I'm, I'm looking at all this stuff through the eyes of love, kind of back to the Reconstructionists, like love, mercy, and people. So love is the thing. So I've been accused. I was actually just accused this last week, very common, from to that, that I like to pick and choose like which scriptures, like how I want to read the Bible. And I'm, I've been saying this for like five or six years. A hundred percent, yes, I am guilty of that. I, I do pick and choose. And what I pick and choose is love. What I think is all of us pick and choose something to, to, to read through. Because, you know, some people are like, you know, it's not love, you know, because sacrifice is important. So if we have time to talk about it, we get to talk about how, well, actually, your love really is a sacrificial love. It's a hyphenated love. You're really into sacrifice. It's really not that much about love. And then other people, you know, they'll, like, they'll use other biblical words like holiness. Like the background I come from, like holiness was, that's the big thing. Heard a lot about holiness. So it's not really love. It's a holy hyphenated love, which all of a sudden starts to put parameters and conditions around love. And no matter what word you add to love, justice, holiness, sacrifice, truth, capital O, omnipotence, et cetera, et cetera, they, they always wind up being conditions and qualifiers. And I finally got to the point in my life where I was like, I don't think that that's love because uh, love doesn't have any conditions. <laughs> love is freely given. And once you start qualifying it with things, I don't think it's love anymore. And I may not have known that. Well, I might, not, I might have known that in my head, but I didn't really know that until I had kids. And I really started thinking through, like, yeah, like there's nothing these kids can do that would make me to stop loving them. I mean, there's a whole bunch of problems that you have to deal with. But it doesn't have anything to do with love. So I think the best thing we can say about God is that God is love. And if God is love, I think the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. Because... Because love doesn't control. As soon as you control someone, I don't think it can be called love any longer. If the beloved can't walk away, then the lover can't claim to be someone of love. And when I say beloved, I mean both human beings and actually I think all created matter from the microscopic to the macroscopic. Now, I do imagine that God relates to the subatomic particle. Wow, this is like the fifth time I've said subatomic particle tonight. <laughs> I'm really not that smart, but uh, it is a nice, it's a nice phrase. Um, I do think that God relates to the subatomic particle different than you or me. So um, when I say all creation, all matter, you know, as being the beloved, they get to turn their back. So I do think that's different, but I also think that particles... Um, have experience and that there's positive and negative I think that is reality there's positive and negative experiences that are going on all the time in the micro and in the macro and that we're made up of a multiplicity of all these different experiences sorry that probably got off into a tangent for a second 
What I want to say is that I think God is a consensual God. And I think this is a really important word for our day and age and has always been. And that a major problem with Christianity in the West has been our massive confusion about love. I just don't think love wants to control at all. My go-to um, scripture here, there's several of them, but my, my favorite has been now for a couple years is all the stuff that went down with the Mother Mary. And I don't remember now uh, if it was Matthew or Luke that's talking about the events as they happened with Mary, but just think about how bad it would have been if whether it was Matthew or Luke, hadn't, include, hadn't included that three little word sentence where Mary, after she hears about the announcement of what God wants to do, where she says, let it be. So if that sentence isn't in there, and a little bit of a trigger warning, and so just fair to say that this is really heavy stuff, but I, but I think it's probably reality. If that sentence is not in there, what we have is the most powerful person well, entity, deity, thing in all the universe, as we understand it, God, forcing himself on this impoverished, um, you know, poor, teenage, small, I assume she was small, maybe she was a big, but this probably 13, 14-year-old girl. I mean, it's, it's something like cosmic rape. I don't know how else, to, how else to frame it. But just by virtue of that one sentence, let it be, like it's, maybe the best sentence in the whole sacred text. It reminds us, and there's a hundred different little things like that throughout the text when you begin to commit to look at it through the eyes of love and the fundamental characteristic of love being consent. It opens our doors, the minds, the doors to our mind to realize that maybe, and this is what I, I remember, it just kind of hit me a few years ago thinking, maybe the entire cosmos revolves around consent. Maybe the divine is in a consensual relationship with everything going on all around us. Yes, even, you know what I'm gonna say, the subatomic particle. <laughs> Gosh dang it. And all the just regular particles. I don't know why I have to go for the subatomic. It's like just being discriminatory towards regular particles and cells and biology and people and trees and cheetahs and pheasants and the moon and the galaxy, I think that I think, like, I think, like, it, it's so beautiful, like, I could shed a tear right now. I think the divine is in a consensual relationship with all things and really cares about everything and all of us and is not interested, in the words of Simone Weil, of doing violence to any secondary means in order to accomplish her will. Which means that I think if consent is true, like that God has the creativity and the intelligence to want what is best for me without hurting someone else to make it happen. Which, you know, us Christians get confused about that all the time too. Like I have three kids, I never once had, I never once thought to myself, well if I hurt that one, it'll give these two a better opportunity to become who they're going to become. It, but Christians in the West, we kind of, we almost default to that thinking sometimes if we're not careful. So consent is, um, it's very challenging. It's very complex. There are some issues with it. I'll grant you that. Um, but it's, uh, 
it's one of my favorite ways to try to unpack this God of love and to get to reality. And um, I am running out of time. So those are my three ways to help us shift into the key of reality. And so, oh, there's our title slide, <laughs> which is fine. See, those are some of the titles I was going to. I was going to go with, I, th I think the third one's probably the best, but, uh, <laughs> but Brucher's talk will work. Okay, I know there's a lot of stuff, sorry, there's a lot of words there, but uh, let's just take a few minutes, maybe chat about questions or comments or problems um, or ways that it makes you feel with the shift from blueprint to story, from mechanism to organism, from control to consent. So the question is, do I believe the Bible is written by whatever unknown thing is that created all of us? Uh, well, technically, no. Um, I think the Bible was written by... Um, well, so whatever it was in... Um, Let's just say God, whatever it was in God's mind, um, probably got screwed up the exact moment he or she decided to let men write it. So as soon as whoever it <laughs> was started penning those first words, you know, probably in the first sentence, God was like, oh, well, that's not exactly what I imagined was going to happen here. Um, but that speaks to the relationality of the whole thing. Um, of then, then God in consenting to work with that person. Um, and then, like, love is so creative. Okay, I'm making this up, but it, I think it works. Like, love is so creative, God's, like, watching what um, whomever, let's just say Joshua was writing something. I don't even remember if Joshua was one of the technical writers, but and God's like, well, no, that's not exactly what I meant to say, but that reminds me, you know, here's, here's seven or eight other ways that this could go and now I'm going to invite um, through the variety of different ways that I like to invite someone to speak into the story so is that starting to go in the right direction you, and you're welcome to push back on that to to reframe or to or if you want to think about it that's fine okay very good Bible Bible can be tricky is it okay if I stay down here or does that mess does that mess you up all right. Like to be down with the people. <laughs> down with the commoners. Um, well, alcohol works sometimes. <laughs> um, drugs, nihilism, despair. We've all tried those things. Uh, un uncertainty, I think, just be the, the way I view it is it it's a it's a very troubling concept but it becomes a way that um that god allows or weaves depending on your view of it um really beautiful things to happen because if you always knew everything that was going to happen if there was no uncertainty i mean geez it doesn't take long to play that out and this is a really really boring world that we have and we certainly don't have a boring world um, so it becomes, uh, it becomes tricky because at times uncertainty in my view can start to coalesce and to start to pull in what sometimes I refer to as anti-love energy, 
and to really push back against God. And in my imagination, that's where the spirit of the Satan kind of is formed. Um, but it doesn't mean, uh, I, I should be quick to add, it doesn't mean that all uncertainty is immoral. I think that there is very much an amoral uncertainty that, ex that it exists at the heart of everything that's going on. And so God interacts with this amoral, amorality, this amoral uncertainty, and is constantly encouraging it and inviting it and luring it to become um, something a little bit stronger that then can provide something we can build upon. So the question is, what do I do with uncertainty? I start to do stuff like that. You know, I start to try to think like an artist and not like um, uh, not like a quantitative engineer, which is good because I suck with numbers anyhow, so it would not work probably. But um, it's a, I'm very much a qualitative engineer kind of a guy. Hope that helps. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, very well said. If um, if there was no uncertainty, there would be no discomfort, but discomfort is a part of the growth process. Discomfort becomes like, you know, the, a warning sign on your car engine that when it, or your dashboard, you know, it pops up. It lets you know something is, you know, maybe not working quite right, and so you need to address it. Uh, maybe that's not the greatest example, but that's what comes to mind. So, y so you can be really thankful for that discomfort because it's, it's bringing you into an awareness of um, how you might need to change or want to change or any number of things. So for sure. And also, like we all know, if there's, if there's no uncertainty, there's no need for faith. I think we miss that all the time. There would be no point. And what's hilarious when you read Jesus, like he was really into faith. He was really into people who had faith. Um, He's constantly saying, I haven't seen any, you know, this, I'm amazed at this faith. Um, so apparently if you really want to amaze who we reference as the son of God, just go through a bunch of uncertainty and have faith. We get those, yeah, mixed up all the time. Very good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, did I ever go through a grieving process? I'll just rephrase it like, with, with all of this, like having to let go of what I was conditioned to think or taught to think? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I was trying to think of something funny to say, but I couldn't think of anything funny to say, which is not abnormal. Um, yeah, no, no, I think that that's a very real thing for all of us. Be, I, I think we, we grieve anything, anything time life changes because we're all like um, I think we're pretty much wired to be meaning making creatures and from the day we're born we're like trying to f make sense of everything and like you get something straight in your head and you're like oh no that you know and you relate to that thing and your identity is in relationship to that thing um, and then inevitably because life is what it is it changes which, by the way, is one of my other shifts. It's the move from, from uh, static, from dogmatism to dyna dynamism. So everything changes, and then your identity changes because you don't, this is how we are. We don't know who we are unless it's up against something else. Um, and then 
you start to feel insecure about that and it agitates maybe insecurities you've had your whole life. And by the way, I think this is a story of humanity. I think that Adam and Eve, which means humanity and life, were in front of the tree and they had insecurities and the spirit of the Satan coalesced around the insecurities and started to whisper in, you know, and then it's cascading a whole bunch of stuff. So definitely grieved it, definitely, especially because I was a pastor at the time, I had to be like, um, surely I won't get kicked out for this or something. Turns out that was not exactly correct. Uh, yeah, there's all these real world implications. It's very, very challenging. And I think a lot of us don't do it because we're afraid of the grieving, which is not a shaming thing. Like, I get it. We're trying to cope. But yeah, it's, it's challenging. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have the same fear. I have the same. It, and it, you know, all these questions kind of like bleed into each other, and it's back to the grieving process. But basically, the question, if you didn't hear, was like, if God doesn't control, like the idea that I had, so I'll just say it in my language, the idea that I had was that God's in control and everything's going towards this ending. Um, and so we're all looking for that ending, which is not a bad thing because we want redemption and we want the story to be written right. And if so, if God's not in control, like, well, yeah, basically, what the hell does that mean? You know, is, is, is that idea that I had, is it gone? And I think and a way to respond to the question is probably yes, in some ways, yes, the idea that I had of the way it was supposed to be is, is that's probably not reality. <laughs> it's probably, you know, my own limited idea of the way it's supposed to go. Um, several things, not necessarily in an order of importance, but um, what this does, I think if we tune up to reality, what we realize, what we might begin to imagine is that there is no one perfect ending that everything's going towards because reality is telling us that things are not static, dogmatic, it's not blueprint, but that things are constantly shifting. And so, um, like, what, that, what would that even mean anyhow? Like, oh, now it's done. Now everything's been fixed. Would the lights just go out? It, it doesn't seem like that makes sense, and it doesn't seem like the Bible's necessarily saying that. So I think it speaks to the ever-changing reality of shifting and morphing and transmutation that's going on and that God is present in all that. And so even when things kind, I don't, fixed is not the right word, but even when things are in tune, finally, I'm still, I'm guessing that, that love is always about choice and freedom, that there's still a chance for things to go out of tune. But that love is also patient. Maybe my, currently my second favorite verse in the Bible, love is patient, partly because I suck at patience. So that's why I think of it a lot. But if it's true that love really is patient, well, that's where my trust is going because it means that when things get out of tune again, if they do, that love is, love is still there and, and working it out. Does that, was that a response? Was that, was that kind of what you were asking too when you were chiming in? Yeah. I will, to be fair, I will say that the, the piece of open and relational theology, which is kind of what I'm talking about tonight, that gets critiqued, uh, and it's fair, the most is this idea of, well, how, how do you know that God is going to, like the justice piece is really important, the redemption piece, like uh, the story, it, 
if if it, if I don't have faith to say it's got to go in a good direction, then I, what would even be the point? And so I do realize for me and for a lot of us that we've leaned on the control thing because it's felt safer, like, oh, this is a really good person that I can trust. It's just, I think you're trading one set of problems for another because now what you have is a God who can tell you what to do. And um, it d it's incompatible with love. It, just, it doesn't make sense to me with love. I think, I, think God is, I think God actually really cares about what we all do and, and how everyone's responding. So you're kind of trading one set of problems for the other, but yeah, it's challenging. And I've had to grieve that too. Yeah. Now it's a lot of good stuff. Um, and by the way, some of you probably already think this way, but like even with scripture, like it is problematic once you start pulling it apart and you have to think in terms of, well, it, this all can't be literal. It just, it can't be. Um, but like when I have friends who come to me and say, well, you know, I read the Bible literally. I'm like, well, what do you do with the parts that were literally written to be metaphors? <laughs> you have to literally read it as a metaphor. Like the whole thing gets messed up. So we all do it, whether people admit it or not. So you're, you're trying to discern what's going on there. Um, yeah, there's probably a lot of different things you brought up. I, I think for me, what I'll try to do is reframe my commitment to what I think is love. Um, and I've had to, uh, I've had to uh, deconstruct as, you know, just used a lot in our culture. But um, I shouldn't say I had to. I was invited to really pull that apart. So now when I say, when I say love, by the way, like in my mind, um, certain like synapses don't fire like they used to when I said love. At least I think that that's what's going on. Like the synapses that fire now, I, when I say love, I think of non-scapegoating, non-binary, non-violent love. That's a very specific kind of love that 10 years ago I wasn't necessarily thinking of. And I, I was invited to formulate that kind of thinking because of all the crap, you know, garbage and really hard trauma stuff that we all have to go through in life. And I was like, okay, if love is going to work, it's got to mean more. So for me, when I ascribe non-scapegoating, you know, non-binary, non-violent, like it, it, it ups the ante on this whole thing and it challenges me and it critiques me and it, and, um, but it also helps me really elevate what I, by faith, what I hope is the, what I think is the best thing about God. And that gets very, I don't know if it's what you're asking, but this is what I'll say. That can get very specific. I think that love, like this is a problem for people like me. Like I'm into the con conceptual, and I'm into the art and the beauty of all of it. Um, and so I have to really remind myself that it's important to, for me to allow love to express itself in very small, singular things. I mean, I guess they don't have to be small and singular, but I, I do think that's the movement of love. It's like this huge, beautiful thing that's always trying to like express itself in, in, in small kind of tangible ways because otherwise it gets too abstract and and not specific so that's a thought um, and a thought along with that is you know in terms of like well why why would our I don't know if you're asking this but why would the Bible be the thing that we have I well first of all if you grow up in India the Bible's not the thing that you have or if you're aboriginal whatever in Australia it's not you know it's 
It's completely different. So they have some specific thing down there, and they're having probably their same, like, conversation of stories down there about, well, you know, this is how, uh, this is how the story was appeared to me. And some another Aboriginal person is like, well, why does it have to be that? You know, what if it's those people? I think that love is so creative and so patient and so enduring and so everlasting that it's constantly, like it's just looking, like it loves a great storyline because it's not blueprint. It's just looking for, oh, this is a really cool tension for me to work myself out in here. And so it's being very specific in very contextual kinds of ways. Um, I just happen to grow up as a, like, basically white, straight American churchy third generation Nazarene pastor like my both granddads were pastors like I didn't have a chance like that was <laughs> that was going to be it and so uh, that's that's kind of that's you know part of it sorry probably a lot of stuff how about one more and then we're done are you done now okay now I always pay attention when the preacher stands up so I just want to be careful yeah yeah, so the question is, do I think God provides texts for everyone to work through? Um, so what I think that I think is, is that God is always working, and that love is never, has never, there's never been a time when love hasn't been working to interact and to bring about the best in its creation. And that um, throughout all 13.8 billion years, but even before that, like whatever was going on before that, love has been happening, and, and things evolve as love encourages and invites them to evolve. And so if a text evolves in a particular shape and form in a particular context, uh, I think love has a lot to do with that. But that love won't force another context to develop the text in the exact same way. Though I do think principles um, are, are, are very important, like non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating. I think love would express itself in Australia to the Aboriginal people in that kind of a way, in all these things that are resonant with reality, but I don't think it necessarily has to be like the words of the Bible, necessarily. <laughs> Isn't this a good time? <laughs> Basically, you just need to sign up for the Substack, buy a couple books, and then you can be confused like me. So thank you very much uh, for having me out. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Peace and blessings, everyone. <laughs>